Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vikalskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. And I'm joined by the Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jane Smiley. Her new novel is called A Dangerous Business. It is available everywhere. And Jane, is uh, as you've put this book together, I always... I've enjoyed reading you over the years. It's hard to pigeonhole you. You, you. you aren't able to be pigeonholed into a genre, but this book touches on historical fiction, psychological thriller, and a crime novel. Did I sort of hit them all? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Okay, but putting this, this book together, it's also a tribute to Edgar Allan Poe. And so as you went ahead and wove this story around a historical era, the mid-1800s in California, what was it? What was it that you were looking for to satisfy your curiosity? Because you always talk about curiosity as what really triggers novel writing. So what was your curiosity for this story? Well, it was trying to imagine the uh, history of Monterey. One of the great things about Monterey, which is a wonderful, wonderful place to walk around in, is that the historic buildings are very well maintained. And the neighborhoods are quite similar to what they were um, in the 19th century. So if you're walking around, it's very easy to imagine what it it would have been like to be walking around back in those days. Now, obviously, things were different. The roads weren't paved. So if 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 it was a rainy season, there would be a lot of mud, that sort of thing. But even so, you could walk around and there was lots of stuff to look at. So that's kind of what made me think, well, I should write a, a book set in Monterey in the 1850s. And then or in a, after Monterey ceased to be the capital of California, which it had been for about a year. Um, and then, you know, I thought, well, why not? Let's have a murder mystery and let's, um, let's make the the women make the people who figure out the murder women, and what would they be doing with themselves? Well, they might, they wouldn't have children uh, and still be, got, be able to get around town all the time, and how would they earn a living? So I made them sex workers, and I gave them a, place, a couple of places to earn a living. The way you wove this story together I thought was interesting because the girls, the, the women in the book, Eliza and uh, um, her, her friend Jean, they talk about Edgar Allan Poe. Jean liked Edgar Allan Poe. Eliza didn't. And this was shortly after Poe's death. And of course, Poe died in a very mysterious way, too, or there's at least mystery surrounding it. So when you take Poe's crime, not, crime stories with uh, Dupin, his protagonist, and you weave them into this story, how true did you stay to the original form of how Dupin solved mysteries versus how... Jean and Eliza went about it? Well, I mostly chose um, the Poe story because I don't think that the, the uh, young women would have had any other way to understand how to go about figuring out who had done the killings. Um, you know, Sherlock Holmes didn't exist. Um, Wilkie Collins hadn't written written any mystery. So even if Jean and Eliza were avid readers, which they were, even though books were quite expensive, they wouldn't have had access to any theory. Except 
for Poe. Um, and he was a popular writer in his day. He wrote a kind of what we would call, you know, um, gothic fiction, which is in general popular. And um, that was their only, that was, well, it was Gene who suggested it, and it was their only alternative in, as a way of figuring out how to go about this, figuring out what they call the logic trail. I know that you are heavily influenced by Charles Dickens, and in particular, Anthony Trollope. And so, as you think about writers of that day, and you write a book that is set in the times that shortly around when they would have been alive, how do you go about imitating the style? And the reason I ask this is there's some words that appear in this book that I actually had to look up the definitions. I figured they were period words. One was a cudgel, which is a stick or a weapon type thing. Yeah. One is grip that was kind of like influenza. And the other, you said, blew out or taper, which I thought, that means something totally different today. That's something that a hairstylist does, but blew out or taper is blowing out her candle. So how did you stick true to the, the, the style of writing and words that would have been used at that time period? Well, I've, I've done that before um, with the All True Travels and Adventures of Liddy Newton, which was set in the same period, though it was set in Kansas and Illinois rather than in California. Um, the way you do it is you just read as many books as you can that were written in that period and you notice what words they use to, um, you know, to, to define things or to describe things. And then you try to let that, those words kind of get into your mind. And then you use them. Something else I found incredibly interesting is the dialogue that Elijah and Jean had. I, I can't remember if they were sitting in a restaurant or walking when they had this discussion, but they were discussing the issue of slavery as we would discuss the issue of maybe not even abortion, but maybe some of the mundane political issues of our day. And it really took me back to, it, it, it threw it in front of me, the, the fact that the political issues that we discuss seem so mundane to something as instrumental as slavery, or, or as uh, monumental as slavery, but yet they were talking about it as if we would talk about just boring political issues of the day. Is that kind of how you took that when you wrote it? Well, um, Eliza has been raised in Michigan in a very circumscribed way. She's basically um, been confined in her home. She's an only child. Her parents only talk about one thing, which is religion, sinfulness, or, or um, being blessed. And she does know that there are escaped uh, slaves that have come up to Michigan. But she's, you know, when she first gets married to this, to this man, she's only 18. So she doesn't really have access to um, the information that maybe other people, for example, Liddy in The All True Travels and Adventures of Liddy Newton, had access to. But even Liddy, who was from Illinois and was also young, was a little bit naive about the whole issue. Um, it's Jean who knows what's going on, but she keeps her opinions on that to herself. It's, uh, it's the men who... Um, some of the men, not all of them, but some of the men who Eliza meets in her, in her job have very strong opinions about it. And as, she, as they explain things to her, her, she gets 
more and more opinionated about it, too. And I think that happened for a lot of young people in the 1850s who, um, who, who had to learn that, their, that the country could be different. It didn't have to stay the same. I would say in 1851, when the book starts, nobody really believes that the Civil War is going to begin. Um, And so I had to portray that sense of naivete that an 18- or 20-year-old would feel at the beginning of the 1850s. I'm chatting with Jane Smiley about her brand new novel, A Dangerous Business. It is available everywhere now. It's just a fantastic trip through Monterey in the mid-19th century. Uh, Jane, I'm sure you've signed thousands, tens of thousands of books at book signings. And something I'm curious about is, uh, is, have you ever gotten a book signed by somebody that you wanted to have signed other than just being polite that you treasure? (laughs) Um. I can't maybe by Alice Monroe. You know, I, I I did some stuff with Alice Monroe and she's one of my favorite writers. Um, but usually I buy books long before I meet the author and then, you know, I go to meet the author and I leave I forget that the book is at home and <laughs> I don't take it along. So, um you know, I can't say that I'm a big uh, I'm a big collector of signed books. And I know, I found it interesting, and I heard you say one time that prizes come and go, reviews come and go, and then poof, <laughs> they're gone. But the, the real reward for you is just in the writing itself. But every time you write a book, it's stamped Pulitzer Prize winning author. Do we as readers remember that stuff or think about that stuff more than you do as a writer? I have no idea. <laughs> it doesn't affect really, you. I, I have really no idea. I mean, the, the job of the publisher is to publish the book and also to promote it. And so they have to put in the things that will strike the readers, get the reader's attention. Um, but, um, you know, I always think, well, it's my job to write it. It's their job to edit it and produce it. And then it's my job to do what I'm told in terms of promoting it. Uh, speaking of the, the Pulitzer, you won that for A Thousand Acres, which recently became a Des Moines opera. Opera. They, they, they based an opera on it. And I watched it, I think it was shortly before Thanksgiving, on public television here in Iowa. And oh. how true, I, and I didn't go back and reread A Thousand Acres at the time, but I read it years ago. How true did the libretto of the opera stay to what you wrote in that novel that many years ago? Well, um, it's hard for me to judge because I don't, I love operas, but I don't really understand them and but it's always true with all performances that are based on a book that the the performance lasts two and a half maybe three hours if you read the book it would take you much longer than that so the performance has to skip through various parts that you put into the book and then do the best they can to um, develop the story and I think that the, the Des Moines Opera Company did the best they could. I went to the original, the first performance, and I thought it was quite entertaining and interesting. Um, I liked the music. 
but you know it can't be the same as a book. They the it, it has to be a performance. It has to be a series of songs, and that's what the off, off audience goes for is the music, and and you just have to hope that the storyline is understandable. Getting back to a dangerous business, I. Nature is near and dear to your heart, especially horses. I know that uh, those are involved in a lot of your books, as they are in this book here. I notice that sometimes the description of nature would be more detailed than others throughout the book. For instance, there was a scene where there was a whale breaching in the ocean, and in other times you wouldn't even mention what the weather was doing or what nature was doing around a scene. How do you decide which scenes call for more descriptions of the natural setting than others? I have no idea. <laughs> It's mostly what I it I don't decide things. I it's what comes to me. I write it out, and then I go through various drafts and say, okay, does this make sense? Should I add more to this? Um, and then I turn it over to the editor, and she says, I don't understand this. Um, so it's writing a book for me is not. Um, a process of decision-making. It's more of an instinctive process. And as you think back to all the books you've written and all the books that you've read, how long do you think it takes for a book to be decide, to be understood as a great book? I'm sure people are still reading A Thousand Acres now. I'm sure they're still reading your books. But, you know, you think about the books that were written 100 years ago that we're still reading now. There aren't a lot compared to what had been released. And with all the books that are released now, these same books won't be read you know, a century later. So how long do you think it takes before a book you can really know how good it really was? Well, but, you know, fashions come and go concerning books, and it also depends on what books you were, tr you were taught to read in school. So when I was going to school in St. Louis, uh, especially in high school, most of the books that we read were by English authors. We read a lot of Dickens, um, we read other other English authors too, and we used them to learn how to write and how to read. So I think a lot of what people read depends on what they read in school, what they learned in school, and what they didn't get to read in school that they read outside of school that also enjoyed. And for me, that would have been Jane Austen. When I look back, I can't figure out why we didn't have to read any Jane Austen in school. It would have been perfect. But a lot of what you're interested in is really formed by the time you're, say, 16 years old. And um, you just hope that you can have the opportunity to, to look at other things. So, for example, I didn't discover French novels until I was an adult, even though I'd heard of French novelist, but one of Emile Zola is one of my favorite novelists, and I did never never read any of his until I was in my forties. Um, and I think you just keep on reading and keep on learning, and you know, one of the books I wrote was Thirteen Ways of Looking at the Novel, and a lot of the novels that I read for Thirteen Ways, I had never read before I started reading started working on that book, and some of them I'd never even heard of, but each novel led me on to reading something else, and that was, that was great. It's fascinating to get an insight into how you work, 
The book is A Dangerous Business. It's the brand new novel from Jane Smiley. It is available everywhere. Jane, just another fantastic offering, and I thank you for joining me to talk about it. Well, well, thanks for having me, and I hope you don't get too much snow. <laughs> just flurries so far. We'll hold our breath. Okay. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcast. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. Let's